Hello and welcome to Take 18, a podcast where we love to talk about movies because we love movies. This show is produced by the Central Coast Film Society. My name is Daniel Lair. I am the founder and executive director of the Central Coast Film Society. And it's great having you guys here with us today, tuning in. Uh, This may have been your first episode that you're checking in with us, but please check out some of our past episodes. We've got lots of great information and uh, just absolutely love doing this podcast thing here. So thank you so much for being here. Today, we've got a full show. Uh, Well, actually, I got to sit down with Professor David Kirby of Cal Poly. He actually is the Director of Science, Technology, and Social uh, Programs at Cal Poly. He also just wrote a book book called Lab Coats in Hollywood, and he loves to talk about the science that's used in film. So it's a really fascinating talk, uh, and I'll have that on the show here in just a few minutes. So um, before we get into anything, though, please make sure that you subscribe to this podcast so that way you can find out when all of our new episodes come out. And that way you can also catch up with all the old episodes you may have missed. Um, We're trying to get these out once a week, maybe twice, you know, once every two weeks. So just make sure that you guys are listening. Um, We all have as much coming to you as humanly possible. Throughout this podcast series, we're going to be looking into movie news, some reviews, and uh, of course, as I mentioned before, the interviews, and, you know, just to talk about how movies are made. And uh, so, we're a little behind on some movie news, so we're going to just dive into it right now. And at the box office, Harrison Ford's remake of The Call of the Wild couldn't race past Sonic the Hedgehog for the top spot when it was released, coming in a close second. But last week's Universal's The Invisible Man came out on top and finally becoming kind of the first big hit horror film of 2020. It just made over uh, just about $28 million on opening weekend. And it's not just a hit at the box office, but it did get a a pretty positive response. It's got an 89% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and a B plus on cinema score. I also had a chance to see this movie. And so we'll talk about that in just a bit. Um, This coming weekend sees the opening of Emma and Disney Pixar's Onward, and Onward, of course, is expected to quickly rise to the top of the box office with a projected $40 million for the opening weekend. I also got to see Onward, so I'll give you a quick review of that in just a moment. Now, uh, something that's also on the minds of all the studio executives is um, the impact, though, coming up with the coronavirus and the box office numbers. So... One studio is actually already so fearful that they may be ending up losing money on their big tentpole blockbuster film. And that movie was pushed back seven months away to November. MGM is pushing their latest James Bond film to star uh, James Bond film. And it's the last one to star Daniel Craig. And it's called No Time to Die to the end of the year in November. Also, um, shooting internationally has kind of become difficult as well. Mission Impossible 7 was scheduled to have a three-week shoot in Italy, but of course that had to be scrapped for those plans. Um, No word yet on uh, how they're going to be going about that. And uh, even movie events, kind of like CinemaCon at uh, Las Vegas and South by Southwest in Austin, are also being affected or um, they're either being altered or uh, uh, canceled outright um, because of the virus. So uh, lots of things going on there. Many are looking at how Disney's going to have the release of their live action version of Mulan that's coming out later this month and see if um, Disney's strategy uh, either works or doesn't work um, when it comes to their audiences in foreign and domestic. And that's an interesting film, too, because of just the Chinese heritage and how many Chinese um, filmmakers were involved in that, because obviously the China markets are going to 
were going to be huge for that. China is a huge box office market, which gets kind of put into that playbook of how do these movies play in China, U.S., you know, Europe. Um, but China is a huge factor in that now. So we'll see what happens with that. Lots of uh, different, you know, businesses and studios are all going to be looking together. They've actually created little teams now um, to try and find out what this virus is going to be doing and how that's going to affect box office ratings. Um, again, like with James Bond having to be pushed back, you know, it's a $200 million film and they need... Uh, those markets like China to do well in. So if there's no audience, if there's no money going into the box office theater there, then the movie's just not going to make money, even though it's a, it could be the best movie ever made. Um, but of course, you know, it's James Bond. They're probably going to have a pretty good following anyways. They're just trying to probably capitalize on the most that they can uh, get out of that. And another funny, uh, kind of interesting news that came out was Steven Spielberg is not directing Indiana Jones 5. Uh, it was kind of a shocker. I'm a lifelong Indiana Jones fan. So um, just thinking about uh, Steven Spielberg not directing a Indiana Jones film is quite crazy to me. The last film, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, came out in 2008. It did have a slight cameo. The Central Coast had a slight cameo in that. Um, it's... I. I've seen that movie a couple times, and I <laughs> I had no idea until I was pointed out to me that that's Morro Bay in the shot during the uh, maps flyover, and I I looked at it and I'm like, yep, that is that is absolutely 100% Morro Bay. So it's really funny to see. Anyways, back to the news. It's uh, it is a shock that Steven Spielberg will not be involved with that uh, at all. So just kind of. Kind of interesting. He's still involved in the movie, still going to be producing, but now, of course, that might have to delay the shoot a little bit more while they try and find somebody to replace Mr. Spielberg. Now, here uh, locally on the Central Coast, we do have some other film uh, events that are coming up, and um, they also have their eye on the virus to see what's going on. So it the San Luis Obispo Film Festival opens on March 17th and is going to run through the 27th. Now, on their website, they state that after working with local, state, federal agencies, um, the 2020 event is going to proceed with, you know, safety is their top priority, and it's been recommended by the San Luis Obispo County Public Health Department. So uh, they are still a go. The same thing is going on uh, at the same time uh, from March 20th to the 22nd is the Nature Trek Film Festival that's going to be going on in Los Olivos. And they feature amazing nature and documentary-focused films. Now, uh, we all know that these events are going to be fantastic. Uh, I personally encourage everybody to attend if you can and support the local filmmakers and these events. So for more information, please visit slowfilmfest.org and naturetrekfilmfestival.org for more information. Now, of course, uh, for a little bit of fun news as well, um, if you saw Universal's The Invisible Man, you may have seen a few references to a local university, Cal Poly. There's a lot of uh, the main characters actually running around in a Cal Poly sweatshirt um, and even drops a reference to it while she's having a, a job interview. So it's pretty fun to see that in films. Um, and speaking of The Invisible Man, I did get to see that in a few other films recently that came out. So uh, let's run through a few quick reviews. And if you'd like to read more of my reviews in depth, there are links through the notes of the show here. Or, of course, you just go to centralcoastfilmsociety.org and click on our blog right there. So for movie reviews, The Invisible Man, going into this movie, I, was, uh, I wasn't I was really looking for 
much in terms of the relaunch of this movie. Uh, it was originally intended for Universal's Dark Universe, and this was going to be Universal's kind of response to Disney and Marvel and Warner Brothers um, having their own comic book universes. And, and Universal was kind of desperate to get in on that universe type uh, franchise. And so it's kind of where, you know, you make your standalone films and with those characters, then eventually they all collide together in one big uh, kind of Avengers-esque, uh, Justice League-esque um, film. And so that was going to be what they were doing with the monsters. Uh, I don't know where they were going with all the monsters colliding, maybe something like Monster Squad, which is, of course, one of my favorite films as a kid in the 80s. Um, but uh, Johnny Depp was actually originally slated to be uh, the Invisible Man. Um, and it was scrubbed after The Mummy starring Tom Cruise failed to launch uh, the franchise. And yeah, that was just after one movie. They canceled the entire franchise because of one movie's performance. Um, a movie with Javier uh, uh, Bardem. He was actually uh, going to be Frankenstein's monster. That was also canceled. Um, I don't think The Mummy was all that bad. Uh, and I was kind of excited to see all this going to be happening. So I, admittedly, I was kind of not excited to see... Um, the Invisible Man after I was just like, well, this is just going to be the scraps and all that. But uh, I I'm really glad that I saw this. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a nice, interesting new take on The Invisible Man, the technology and the science behind it. Uh, and of course, we'll talk about that with Professor uh, Kirby in just a, a few minutes. But um, I loved it. Uh, there were some flaws and things like that. But, you know, I it was fun. It was a fun popcorn flick. So three out of five stars for me on that one. Now, I also got to go see The Call of the Wild. Um, watching this movie, I, I felt like this movie was made for... <laughs> it was being made specifically for substitute teachers to play during their classroom coverages. Um, you know, they just plug in the movie, hit play, and that's it. That's all they do. Um, it touches and glosses over a lot of history that was kind of behind in the novel and obviously the movie is made with a lot of uh, the younger audiences in mind which is fine the only the material it's it's hard to adapt for a younger audience and I don't think Jack London had that in mind um, it's fascinating to see the film how it was marketing uh, how the marketing monster was behind it. it it showed Harrison Ford with the dog you know and the dog's name is Buck but um, Ford, uh, Harrison Ford does a good job um, with the screen time he has. And I will say that because he's only in the movie for about a third of the movie. He's, he's narrating and all that stuff, but he's actually only physically on screen for maybe about a third of the movie, maybe a little bit more. But um, definitely I was kind of like shocked that he wasn't in the movie uh, as much as I thought he would be. He plays a, a, an individual with troubled past. He's running to the end of the world to find peace and, you know, quiet. Um, and I, I, I wish the movie had been more of that, you know, with his, his journey, uh, instead of following a, a CGI dog and CGI animals around, uh, the entire time, which it just kind of felt more like a cartoon. So, uh, two and a half out of five stars for that one. And finally, I got to see Onward, the Disney Pixar film that's opening up this weekend. Uh, I just have to come out and say that I just love that Disney's made a fantasy film for young adults. Uh, you know, to, to make magical, mythical creatures cool again, uh, that was just awesome to see. 
But of course, you know, we all know that Pixar likes to take our hearts, tear it into tiny little shreds, and then just rebuild it lovingly and send it out with a nice big hug at the end of uh, the movie. So it's kind of though, it's sort of like Call of the Wild, where this story I felt was far more mature than I thought younger kids would would, uh, be involved with and have a harder time to kind of wrap their heads around it. So there are moments that, you know, there's pure slapstick comedy and, and just like any great film would, uh, animated film would have, um, you know, where younger kids are going to have fun. There's things, you know, where the adults are going to only get it. Um, but, uh, the story team at Pixar, I, I think they really, uh, took the broken heart of a broken family in this story. And, and they were able to put those feelings into the audience, I think, exceptionally well. Um, Pixar to me, They've mastered the the kind of sorcery and magic of making audiences feel exactly what they want you to, <laughs> and and that just goes to show how awesome they are as storytellers and um, filmmakers. Because ultimately, that's what you want it, as a filmmaker is to make your audience feel for your characters and make them have those emotions and those personal connections. And you definitely get that here with this film. So really should go see it four out of fives four onward. And now it's time to shift gears and not talk about fantasy anymore, but let's talk about science in movies with professor David Kirby. We are here now with Professor David Kirby. How you doing, David? I'm doing great. Great. And we are here at Cal Poly. And tell, tell me a little bit about what you do, what's your background, and what brought you here. Well, at the moment, I am chair for the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies and Liberal Arts. I'm also program director for the Science, Technology, and Society program. Um, I have a bit of an unusual background in that I... I'm trained as a scientist of PhD in molecular evolutionary genetics, wow. uh, but decided uh, I liked movies a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I retrained um, into the field of science and technology studies and science communication. And now, yeah, I write about uh, science and movies and science and TV shows. So let's start there. So tell me about you, you've got a book. Yes. And tell me about your book. So the book is called Lab Coats in Hollywood, and it involves interviews I did with scientists who worked as consultants on Hollywood movies, as well as some filmmakers, right? So I, I talked to them about their experiences incorporating science into right. cinema. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so there's a lot, I think there's even like a, uh, there's a YouTuber out there that talks about the science of movies and they try to show, you know, how much of this could actually happen. Yeah. So is that something that really fascinates you is like, you know, what, what, what is possible here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for some of it, uh, yeah, the idea of what is scientifically accurate, what's not scientifically accurate. But what I was more interested in is how filmmakers as well can work with science, but how they sometimes have to work within the constraints they yeah. have. Yeah. Uh, um, so for part of the book, one of my goals is to talk about the constraints that filmmakers are, are under. You know, They're never going to be 100% accurate right. in science. Yeah. It's just not possible because well, they have so many constraints that the filmmakers have to deal with. Sure. And of course, you know, in a lot of times I think the uh, uh, filmmakers are going to sit around and say, well, it's Hollywood. You yeah. know, it, there's you're, you've got to you got to have that suspension <laughs> of disbelief. You have to be able to just roll with it yeah. if it doesn't really work out in the back end. You know, but I think some movies, though, um, they do try to strive for that authenticity in the science realms. Yeah. What What's some of the movies you think that really hits that? high mark on on trying to be authentic yeah there's a couple i mean i would say the martian yeah for sure yeah. um 
is probably the gold standard of the most recent films. I mean, 2001, A Space Odyssey, for the time, was amazingly scientifically uh, accurate. Um, or, I mean, Finding Nemo, actually, yeah. the children's film. I mean, they spent a we're, lot of we're, time. We're going to talk to, about that in a yeah, little bit. They spent a lot of time talking to marine biologists. So yeah. it's not just heavy science fiction space films. Sure. That, that will have that type of thing. Now, conversely, I think there are certain films that may inspire science and, and things like that. Do you what, what do you think about that? Yeah, there are certain, well, there's definitely certain films that inspire um, technologies yeah. to be uh, created. I'm thinking of the tricorder on Star Trek. Yeah, well, the yeah. tricorder on Star Trek, or yeah. my favorite example that I talk about in the book is what's called the gestural interface in Minority Report. Oh. So... It's Tom Cruise using his hands to manipulate data on a computer screen. Right. Um, and the science consultant who worked on that film sort of approached it as if, well, let's see if this is like a real technology. And because of its depiction, he was able to get some money to create a real prototype. And then uh, that prototype was uh, then taken by the U.S. military, who now uses his gestural wow. interface. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, let's see what else. Uh, one of my favorites though, and, and I, I'm not sure if you talk about this in your book, but, um, the movie that got me wanting to be a filmmaker when I was a kid, this movie came out and, and I was like, no, I have to make movies like this was Jurassic Park. Oh yeah. I mean, to yeah. me, there is like that, that is my home run. Yes, yes, yes. We need to make stuff like this because I think it, it had one hand in reality and science but then of course it had another hand in hollywood so <laughs> yeah i mean uh, yeah Jurassic park is all over my book i mean yeah. i talked to uh jack horner who was their primary science consultant and uh yeah i i actually see Jurassic park as the sort of moment in which filmmakers started to really think about using scientists as consultants. Yeah. So I think of uh, of it as sort of a pre-Jurassic Park thing and then a post-Jurassic Park phenomenon because after Jurassic Park, I mean, it had this realism, right? Mm. But it had sort of two types of realism. It had that visual realism. Boy, these things look like real animals. <laughs> right. And then it had the scientific realism. Wow, this is adhering to the types of uh, scientific uh you know, authenticity that people are currently talking about. So filmmakers afterward, when they wanted to replicate it, they had to say, well, the success was was one, the other both. And so that's when you started to get many more scientists involved yeah. in making films. Well, and it's about all different types of science, too. I mean, it's like you were saying, you know, you could do the paleontology, you could do biologists, you could do uh, anything, any number of things, physics. Um, it runs the gamut. I mean, when, yeah. when you're also doing films, um, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but I mean, when you're doing like uh, even Star Trek, you know, they bring in their consultants to talk about all this sort of stuff. It's even the bigger picture, you know, or shall I say, the big tentpole Hollywood films are going to bring in those consultants as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would be surprising today to have a film that has any scientific content that does yeah. not bring in a scientist to do it. Although Star Trek is an interesting one in that, I mean, the movies now, they bring in, they, they brought in, you know, actual real scientists. Um, the TV shows, not that he's not a real scientist, but they had a... a science consultant named uh, Andre Bormanis. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one quote I just love for him is someone asked him, well, you know, how do you make sure the science in Star Trek is real? 
He's like, look, I just need to make sure it's consistent with Star Trek science. You know, <laughs> right. they've got their own sort of history and mythology of science. And you know, I need That's to line that up before I think about real science. Yeah, yeah. Um, what movie do you think is one of the more cringeworthy uh, science ones? Like you watch it and you just go, oh, and you just shake your head and you can't stand it. Yeah, there's a bunch. I mean, some talk about it in the book where they had scientists with them, but they didn't listen to them. So there was one called The Core. Um, yeah, yeah. That came out uh, where the f- uh, screenwriter thought he knew more physics than his physics consultant. Um, I'm thinking like Armageddon. Well, Armageddon, <laughs> yeah, Armageddon's a funny one in that they had a lot of uh, NASA was involved heavily in it, mm-hmm. but they were working on the NASA stuff. I was going to say, whereas, it, are are they just you know they're included just so that they could use their stuff as props? Pro- yeah, yeah, they want you that know? realism. They yeah. definitely want that sort of. They call it the sort of NASA look. They sure. Want, you know, but for the actual science of the asteroid, no, Michael Bay was essentially, you know, I saw a quote where someone asked him about it and he's like, ah, no, I don't care. This is a movie. Right. Why yeah. should we care? Whereas Deep Impact came out the same year. They put a lot of attention into the scientific detail. I mean, one recent film that I don't like uh, because of this is the film Lucy, um, which sort of, you know, promulgates the myth that we only use 10% of our brain. Right. And so that I find uh, not very good. Um, Yeah, so there's a lot of films that you can sort of point to. The movie Volcano, about a volcano erupting under Los Angeles. Right, right. Dante's Peak. Dante's Peak. Yeah. Well, Dante's Peak, they had a lot. The U.S. Geological Survey was involved in some of that. But... So yeah. sometimes I think what it comes down to is just sometimes it's just up to the uh, the filmmakers and just what they're, you know, are we going to yeah. be able to roll with the science or are we going to be able to roll with the story and just make it Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there are some, like I said, there are these filmmaking constraints and the good filmmakers are the ones who say, well, how can we overcome some of these constraints? And the ones who don't care just say, yeah, no, it's not worth it for me to, to try and do. Right. You know, so in Jurassic Park, for example, there's a great, ex- um, you know, there's a, a great example that I use uh, all the time when I do talks is um, the velociraptors going into the kitchen. Initially, they were going to have these tongues that flicked hmm. and Jack Horner paled out and said, no, no, that's they don't, you know, that makes them look like lizards or snakes. They don't do them. Right. want to be more like birds. Um, but the special effects guy, Phil Tippett, he loved it. So it, they said, well, give us something else, right? So it's not just saying, hey, that's wrong. It's, you know, give me an alternative. And Jack Horner did. He gave them this great idea of them snorting some breath and fogging up the window. And yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great scene, and it's, you know, scientifically authentic. That's awesome. There's, um, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, some special effects, too. You know, the way things, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, disaster movies um but there's i think also ways that uh science has been worked in how does cg work and and how my background i also worked in visual effects a little mm-hmm. bit and so i remember that trying to replicate water and fire were always the most difficult mm-hmm. to do and also when you're building little things that just get blown into a million pieces how do you recreate that in the computer and i remember there we actually had to have some guys come in and say yeah that's exactly how it would move or how that would act so do you know of any examples like that yeah i mean i, I for the book i didn't do much with that that we you know those guys were called technical consultants who okay. would, would go in um but yeah you know, i ran across a lot of articles as i was doing the research and I mean, the one that stuck out to me was uh, the fur in Monsters, Inc. So yeah, the fur on yeah. Sully was this, 
this this problem that they had to sort of really work out. Right. Um, but yeah, sometimes the scientists will work with the special effects people, and in some ways, for the scientists, it's incredibly useful, right? Because it's a very powerful visualization sure. technologies yeah. and things that you know they want to see how it looks on the screen. They'll right. say, you know, like on Deep Impact, many of them were like. I want to see what you can use this technology to make a comet look like on the screen. Right, right. Um, you know that the the Sully fur is a great segue, I think, into Finding Nemo. Yeah. Um, so we do have an event coming up, and uh, which I believe we're going to have you there, and yeah. we're, we're going to be talking about Finding Nemo at the uh, Central Coast Aquarium in Avila Beach, and that is yeah. going to be coming up on March 29th. So, uh, of course, check out our website for that. But tell us a little bit about Finding Nemo and, and all the science that had to go into that, and just an animated film. Yeah, well, it's an animated film. It's a children's film, yeah. but the you know the, the people at Pixar who were, were making the film really wanted it to be scientifically authentic. Yeah, and they believed that you know children's films should be as good as as adult films, and that means you know you want to make sure the science is correct as well. Right, and so they brought in a lot of marine biologists uh, to talk with the animators and the script writer to get a sense as to, you know, what would it look like in a coral reef? What types of animals would you see? How would they behave? Right. What would they do? Um, and they did, yeah, an amazing job. Yeah, I think for me, um, again, kind of going back to the whole visual effects and water thing, it's like when I when I watch Finding Nemo the first time, I'm like, I feel like the camera's underwater. Yeah. And that's because I'm seeing all the particles that are floating through there and all, you know, if it's the plankton that's floating through the water and how the how the light is shining through the water and how that's reflecting on everything and, and how the light is, is bending on the water. It, it's amazing and it's so realistic. And I think that that's something that on a technical level is really uh, stands out from what Pixar does. Oh, I mean, yeah. it, you do that with that. I mean, what was it? The most recent Cars movie. I, it just it looks so photo real <laughs> and certain things. And you're going, no, there's no way this was all ones and zeros. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And and then when you pile on top of it, the idea of having the ecology of a coral reef. Yeah. Looking the way it does, the clownfish, you know, um, you know, not certainly not talking the way clownfish talk <laughs> with their but, eyes. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Acting their movements yeah, and the, the their way movements. they swim and. Yeah. Being sort of the, the right animals for the right place. I mean, that's. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate your time, and I'm really looking forward to this event coming up, uh, and, and we'll definitely talk more. So if you are interested in coming down and checking us out and talking to the professor here, uh, we'll we'll be there. We'll uh, be yeah. happy to talk with you and talk more about a science. And, and uh, maybe there's one more question I want to ask, because um, do you... The, the science in movies is also... Uh, movies has been... I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this movie technology and the way movies are made has progressed tremendously over the past hundred years. Yeah. What are some of the more exciting things that you see coming up in science in actual movie making that might be the, the new things that they're working on? Well, that I don't know. <laughs> so new technologies, right. I don't know. But I mean, one thing I can say is like motion captures and all that sort of fun yeah, stuff. And, yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons why you get so many science consultants nowadays as well is because of the advances in those technologies, the realism of the images is, is so phenomenal mm -hmm. that the filmmakers want the realism of the science to sort of match it, right? They, right. Don't, they don't want 
people, you know, they want they don't want to waste these amazing images by having someone go, oh, that's looking, that's dumb. You know, yeah, that science right. doesn't make any sense. Right. Why would you do that? So because of those changes in special effects is one reason why you get more scientists involved sure. as well. Well, and yeah, and, and I just think it's cool because, you know, it's the Academy of Arts and Sciences, Motion Picture Arts yeah. and Sciences. And yeah. and there's a lot of science that goes into it because, it, you know, back in the old days, this was all a chemical process. It was all optics. It was all, you know, you used a lot of science in order to make these films. And that, yeah. for me, that was, that's pretty fun and exciting because to me, it's almost like, how do we use science as, uh, as one of our tools in our toolboxes? Yeah. Um, so definitely very cool. Uh, also, before we go, I have to make a shout out to because Cal Poly has a big shout out in a science type film yeah. uh, The Invisible Man just came out yeah. so if you haven't seen it yet there's a lot of uh, fun stuff in there um, the Cal Poly tie in though is not it's for architecture but uh, definitely go check it out it, it's it's a lot of fun to yeah. see what, what they're uh, what, what it, The Invisible Man is wearing a suit this time because the old old ones was about uh, a chemical process and kind of that whole thing but this is now optics and camouflage and what these little cameras can do. So it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely recommend it. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Professor. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. As we mentioned before, you'll want to make sure that you want to come and meet David and talk about science and movies at our Finding Nemo screening at the Central Coast Aquarium in Avila Beach on March 29th. So see our website for more details or our Facebook group as well. I also want to give a little update on a big thing we're working on. The inaugural Central Coast Film Festival is definitely taking shape. Um, Details will be released in uh, the the coming days, weeks maybe, so very soon, let's say. That's coming soon. Um, So make sure that you uh, follow and share our social media pages, uh, sign up for our newsletter on the website, and um, you can look for our smoke signals, you can look for our uh, carrier pigeons, whatever you're going to, and just be on the lookout for some some of our plans. It's going to be coming out here very soon. Uh, It's all really exciting, so uh, I'm excited to share that with you guys. And with that, that is a wrap on this edition of Take 18. Again, my name is Daniel Lair. It has been a production of the Central Coast Film Society. We are a 501c3 organization and uh, couldn't make the show or anything we do possible without your generous support. So, you know, you can help uh, make a difference. Please consider making a donation purchase a membership we've got several of those all lined up and especially with our film festival coming out you might get some perks depending on which uh level of membership you get on that um you could also just simply attend our events and come check it out and and, you know help us boost some numbers uh you know your your participation in any way is a show of support for us and and we couldn't be more grateful for that visit our website www.centralcoastfilmsociety.org all one big word (laughs) for more information sign up for a newsletter or again just follow us on social media i want to thank professor david kirby again for taking time to chat with us today uh also i want to thank you all for listening all the way to the end here so make sure you subscribe and share this with everybody and that's how you really can just help us with just a few clicks thank you again for all your support and i truly hope you enjoyed this episode that's a take (music) 